We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves must disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. And welcome. I'm Chris McCurry. I'm Emma Waddington. And we're here with the delightful Joe Oliver in London. And Joe is a distinguished clinical psychologist, associate professor, and program director for the University College Postgraduate Program in Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Severe Mental Health Problems. He is also co-author of the self-help book, The Mindful and Acceptance Workbook for Self-Esteem from New Harbinger which explores how to untangle from our self-limiting stories about ourselves, others, and the world, to develop a deep sense of self-acceptance along with meaning and purpose in life. He is co-editor of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Mindfulness for Psychosis, co-author of Activate Your Life, Act for Psychosis Recovery, Act for Coaching, and 100 Key Points in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Fabulous. Thank you for coming and talking to us today in Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Thank you so much both for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Very exciting. So today we're going to be talking about self-esteem, and I hadn't realized that actually it's such an old concept in psychology. It's over 100 years old, and it's you know something that most of us are familiar with. In fact, just before coming onto the podcast, I asked my almost 13-year-old, what he thought about self-esteem and if he thought it was important. And he said, absolutely, it's very important. And I asked him why. And he said, because without it, you have no confidence. And without confidence, you can't do anything. And without that, you'd get depressed. So it struck me that, you know, even 12-year-olds now have an opinion on self-esteem, which is quite something. Yeah. So what's the deal with self-esteem, Joe? Talk to us a little bit about your understanding of it it's a it is an old concept it's a funny concept in that and it's it's fascinating to hear your 13 year old talk about it which i think speaks to the the cultural memeability of this idea it's it's something really catchy about it it's very grabbing it's stuck around for a long long time even though it's kind of limiting in a lot of ways like there's lots about the idea of self-esteem that really actually don't work and in modern times We've, we've become, I think, uh, we've ha- developed a healthy suspicion of the term, at least us clinicians have, uh, and I think researchers too, but it's certainly out there in the, for the general public, it holds a lot of purchase, it's still an ongoing basis, and there's good reason for it. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're all fascinated by this idea of our own self-esteem, it's, you know, the, the, how much esteem we have, and kind of built into that idea is sort of this idea of our eval- an evaluation of ourselves. Uh, and I think the appeal of that is we all kind of want to know where we stand in society or, you know, in our networks and relation to other people. And that's a, a really useful tool if we can grapple that in some way. Like, you know, if we can know where I stand next to other people, like am I, am I good, am I bad, am I acceptable, am I not acceptable, am I part of the group, am I outside of the group? And for us as a very social species we're fascinated and intrigued by anything that gives us that kind of information 
So we attend to that very, very closely. And, you know, in your, your teen's description there, like this idea of the confidence we have. And I really like that, the kind of chain that, that he's describing there. The self-esteem is about confidence and confidence is the ability to do things. If you don't do things and you get depressed and that kind of makes a lot of sense in a lot of way. Certainly that last part, absolutely. But it's the the sort of the bundling together with this idea about our, our confidence and our evaluation of ourselves that uh, sort of starts to point towards some of the limitations that this idea of, of confidence and or our, our esteem has. Mm-hmm. And we can sort of start to see it, particularly when we start thinking about ideas of perhaps come to cooperation, us cooperating as a group together or, or even as a species together or sort of acceptability within society, things that this idea kind of takes us down a garden path that maybe has a bit of a dead end when it comes to acceptability and, and fitting in, particularly when maybe we have features about ourselves that, that, that are deemed by someone out there as maybe unacceptable or different, then the limitations of the idea of self-esteem come, come into play. So yeah, as, as, as a memeable kind of idea, fantastic. And it does point to something. But there are sort of some limitations as, as often how it gets operationalized, I think, you know, when sort of, I don't know, as a self-esteem intervention or how we actually build self-esteem. How do we do that in a healthy, uh, useful, flexible way? That's kind of where some of the limits come into play. There's been a lot of research in this area, hasn't there? There's been a lot of research, yeah. I suspect probably that, I don't know, why do, why do people get interested in particular areas? I guess it's, it's a valuable area. People... The general public is interested in it. There's been research money thrown at it. The tons of research have done with school kids, for example. Can we raise the self-esteem? If we can, what happens in the in the workplace? You know, self-esteem in the workplace, self-esteem across everywhere, in any particular place you can look at it. It's, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the metric is, but I would say it's probably as a as one of the psychological concepts has been one of the most researched topics that's out there. And, you know, some interesting findings have sort of come out of that at the end of it, which perhaps, I don't know, I don't think maybe the research is going into what we're necessarily expecting, I think. And certainly I don't think I would have necessarily anticipated. Do you have a particular study that you found intriguing in terms of how they set it up or, or the results that they got? Something standing out in your, in your, all your looking into this? There's, there's two or three studies I think are kind of interesting. One is a couple of them are sort of representative, I think, of of some of the problems. And there's one a kind of a big study that I often kind of cite when I th- sort of look at putting the final nail in the coffin of the concept of self-esteem. It sort of gives a kind of glimmer into how the concept can be well, not problematic, but it has its limitations if used in a certain way. So it's a really interesting study by a group, Marshall and colleagues, who looked at raising self-esteem in adolescence or at least looking at it and the the curious thing they found there was that that self-esteem wasn't necessarily a problem when for in terms of functioning and just getting on with life when coupled with self-compassion curiously so it seemed like you know first of all self-compassion provided something of a buffer so these were people kids who were saying you know they they reporting self-reporting as having low self-esteem but also quite compassionate towards themselves so there's clearly like a buffering thing going on. So that sort of, I don't know, sheds a light onto this sort of nearly what often gets described as a personality construct. You have low self-esteem, therefore all other outcomes are bad. If it can be buffered by self-confidence, then that suggests something interesting is going on. There's a really neat 
a set of studies by Nissen Lai, that's how I pronounce it. She's a Norwegian, I think, and her colleagues. And this was a, a was this on self doubt, which is I think a kind of analogous to self esteem, and and it was called doubt yourself as a therapist, love yourself as a person. High self doubters and were found to be the most effective, one of the most effective groups of of therapists and. Initially, I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. I mean, I thought if you're doubting yourself, you're not going to be that tentative. You don't really back your results in terms of your therapy outcomes. But as reported by patients, people on the receiving end, they said these, this group of people were providing the best outcomes. And there was a really neat subgroup of people who were found to be like the most, these were the super therapists. They're the, the people who are both self-doubting and self-compassionate. And you could probably imagine the kind of people that would be very kind towards themselves, understanding, but also were very aware of their limitations and therefore worked hard to, to correct them. And you can see how, you know, kind of these sort of ambiguous ebb and flow with the nuance of a therapy setting, how these traits are actually really, really helpful. And probably that's widely applicable in all sorts of areas in life, right? Life in general, I think, uh, is typically, I don't know, there's a lot of ambiguity in life. There's seldom we enter into places where things are right and wrong, black and white. But having that kind of tray, those trays, I think, lend themselves quite well to good outcomes. There's one the very last study. There's a bit massive study. This is it's a it's a fascinating read in the sense of it's like a review of thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, of studies. Like it's 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 just you know it's forty fifty pages worth by Roy ba- by Baumaster and colleagues, and they concluded essentially that. Uh, after reviewing all these studies on self-esteem, that there was not any evidence that boosting self-esteem has any real benefits. And to me, that was, I don't know, that's, that's the nail in the coffin when it comes to self-esteem. It's kind of like a, a, a fairly global statement on the all the work that people have put into raising self-esteem. What sort of benefits were they expecting or hoping would come out of boosting self-esteem? Oh, just you name it. In terms of pro-social outcomes, for example, in terms of academic progress, in terms of connectivity with you know colleagues in in the workplace and schools, well, the way actually the one thing they did find is that studies were actually quite good at boosting self-esteem as per reports. People would do an intervention, and the end of it, they'd say, "Yes, I've got higher self-esteem." But in terms of meaningful outcomes after that, they tended not to show anything particularly good. In fact, often kind of quite bad. People were higher in terms of, or lower in terms of pro-social, pro-sociality. So, you know, less cooperative, less helpful, higher in terms of narcissism, higher in terms of self-focus. And then you can sort of imagine all the outcomes that come from there. So, I don't know, probably not really the, the intended outcomes that self-esteem researchers are really looking for. Wow. So it's actually a bad thing to raise your self-esteem in a way. Yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of what they're saying. Probably without other factors involved because i mean if you're looking at just you know the group sure you're going to have a lot of those little narcissists running around after having their self-esteem boosted but i wonder about the people who you know as you mentioned earlier with self-compassion and self-doubt you know combining Mm. things could make for a different path Mm. yeah exactly I said it's sort of when I think about it, and I think about some of my work clinically, and I look at often the kind of pathway people have come to see me who've been on, those sort of findings make some sense to me because I think that people sort of intuit 
oh, I need to boost my self-esteem. I need to feel better about myself. I need to be more confident. Like I need to not have the beliefs of not being confident. You know, like I'm a good person. I'm strong. I'm capable. And often I would see people who are, you know, quite skilled at doing that. You know, they do something and at the end of it, they would have the sort of raise their beliefs sort of similar to like a self-esteem intervention. But then that turned out often not to be a particularly robust set of beliefs that were quite brittle. So, you know, typically what would happen then when the person would encounter their very first obstacle or hurdle and they weren't able to to manage it or overcome the hurdle, then suddenly they were just sort of, those beliefs would sort of fall apart. The person would end up in a place of kind of feeling even lower about themselves. Like, oh my gosh, even when I was able to think really positively about myself, I still couldn't do what it took. There must be really something deep down that's wrong with me that I need to dig out and figure out and get the answer to. Well, that's, that's a lot like you know, Carol Dweck's work on, you know, self stories and thinking of intelligence as a, an entity, a thing that you have and it's measurable and it's immutable and you're born with like, you know, Mm. X amount and somebody else has more and somebody else has less, as opposed to thinking of intelligence as something that can be nurtured and grown the growth mindset, as it's called. And people with the the more entity view of intelligence tend to not take risks because they don't want to you know, risk finding out that they're really not that intelligent, whereas people with the growth mindset are happy or at least willing to take on challenges because they know that that's going to increase their skill sets or you know their overall fund of knowledge or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, doesn't doesn't sort of allow for growth or possibility or or change. Well, that other thing I think is that you know when we start looking at sort of global evaluations of things like our intelligence or our personality or who we are, it doesn't allow for a lot of variability because you know I don't know I, I find for me personally I find I, I vary a lot. I, probably people seeing me maybe not recognize the variability, but I, I feel very variable. Like I'm just thinking like on Sunday when we had some friends over. We had, they had kids and they were playing the pool and I was kind of relaxed and, you know, having fun and just joking around. Like there was the sort of that side of my, me showed up in, in that instance. And, and then I went, I played a uh, football, a soccer game for the first time with a group of school dads. I got invited along and it wasn't kind of like a trial or anything like that, but I couldn't help go into it thinking, this is a trial. They're all going to be watching me see if I can kick a ball. You know, I was, I was nervous going in thinking, what if it all goes wrong? What if I miss and slip and fall over and all that? And, and uh, there, was, there was a different, another type of me showed up there. And I was a little quieter and more hesitant and trying to fit in with people and not make mistakes. And, and I think that goes for all of us, right? Depending on the context and the situation we find ourselves in, the variability is massive, Yes. which doesn't allow for a, you know, a bit of movement in terms of how we evaluate ourselves. And I was just thinking about, you know, this whole idea of, you know, high self-esteem, good, low self-esteem, bad. You know, the danger of if you're so protective of your self-esteem, your insensitivity, the kind of, you know, you will pot- potentially ignore feedback or not really listen to see if people have a different perspective on how you're doing things. It doesn't allow mm. for that flexibility, if you're very mm. attached to seeing yourself a certain way in order to protect your self-esteem. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and a bit like you, your example of going off and playing football, if you were really attached to being seen a certain way, that might have impacted the way you played or, you know, how you related to the people around you. 
And so we're kind of looking for this flexible self-esteem in a way, you know, mm. not attached to any labels necessarily, but mm. using it in a way that allows us to adapt to circumstances, depending on what the context, like you've said, you know, the context calls for. And we were chatting mm. with Emily Sanders a few podcasts ago about body image flexibility mm. and how different contexts you know, call for different ways of seeing your body or relating to your body and perhaps different days you see your body differently. And I wonder if that's similar to self-esteem. Instead of being something that isn't changeable, it's actually something that can be very changeable depending on the way mm. you wake up in the morning, but also depending on the situation you're faced with. And mm -hmm. sometimes you will evaluate yourself differently. Mm -hmm. How important something is or, mm. uh, yeah, how much is on the line Right? Mm. how much really matters we might feel more vulnerable yeah absolutely i think that's yeah that's so true so much variability isn't there between the different contexts and situations that show up and sort of makes me think like as, as much as we like to do the evaluations too like i think everyone loves doing that i love to know where i stand and where i fit and i, I just can't i just can't help it just those evaluations just flow out of me i i think one of the when we're thinking about you know developing a healthy relationship with ourselves whatever exactly that means but sometimes just holding those evaluations a bit more lightly so you know when me going into that football group you know i was conscious of there were lots of evaluations i said you know i'm terrible footballer i'm not fit i'm too old these guys are much younger than me and there might have been some truth to some of that but at the same time it was like well you know that what I really wanted to do is I just wanted to go along and have some fun and meet some some new dads. That was what my real goal. Have some fun playing football. And those evaluations just certainly weren't helping me to do that. As true as they might have been, or not true, whatever. And the other curious thing is just just the way they just popped out. Didn't even have to ask. Mm -hmm. There they were presented to me straight away. That's so interesting. I was just actually today. I've been chatting to people about self esteem in preparation for mm -hmm. today. Just curious about how people make sense of it. And so I just asked my husband, Francois, just before as well, I said, what do you make of self-esteem? And he said that it doesn't matter to him so much anymore. That maybe once upon a time, he noticed that perhaps, you know, self-esteem was, was, it's not that it doesn't matter to him, but that he notices a change in his self-esteem over time, over his life. And that perhaps mm -hmm. younger, you know, his younger self would peg himself, would compare much more to others. You know, mm. perhaps if he had this role or if he didn't or how he played football, like you were saying, or how he didn't. And now kind of the comparison part doesn't matter as much. And I was wondering about what that does. If over life, our self-esteem, I asked him, do you think your self-esteem has changed? Mm. Is it something that's changed or is it the way you see yourself that is more flexible? And he was saying, I think that I don't compare myself as much. And so right. that evaluation piece perhaps is, you know, is, is much stronger at certain times of our lives or in certain contexts. And therefore, mm -hmm. our self-esteem perhaps is more threatened mm -hmm. or our sense of self is more threatened in certain contexts. Perhaps if work is, you know, very important to us, we might feel yeah. very vulnerable and our self-esteem might feel vulnerable. Versus, you know, like when you become a, a new parent and we feel incredibly vulnerable and inadequate because our skill set feels like it doesn't really meet the task. And that's when we need to take ourselves, you know, act very kindly with lots of self-compassion because it's true. Our mm -hmm. skill sets is probably quite low because it's the first mm -hmm. time 
doing it. And perhaps we could say our self-esteem as a parent is low, but then it's not something that we should attach ourselves to because it could get in the way, couldn't it, of our ability to parent if we start challenging ourselves on why our self-esteem is so low. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, you could easily get into that place of uh, doing too many comparisons or unhelpful comparisons or, oh, the comparisons are bad. I, you know, I've got a lot of time and place for comparisons. I like to mm-hmm. sort of know where things stand, but kind of comparisons that start moving from sort of interesting data, like how am I doing as a parent? And, you know, I don't know, is there other things I need to learn from the people around me or that, that, that I could, could draw on or just checking in when it starts kind of getting conflated with this sort of my, my sense of I deep down and I start doing that kind of comparison, like, you know, like Emma is a better person than me. Chris is a far better person than me. You guys are better than me. And then those places make it really, really hard to do anything useful for when it's my actual, my, you know, my sort of everything imbued inside me, my DNA is, is starting to get compared. And those kind of places are, are, are really kind of those. It's an inevitable, I think, uh, end point of that comparison game as we start getting into that place too much. Mark Twain said comparison is the death of joy. Right. <laughs> so in your in your football game, you know, this sort of casual game with, with the other dads, you know, comparison robs you of the ex- joyful experience of just, you know, being out there and having some fun. Definitely. Yeah. You know, strips the strips the joy out of it. That's a really nice quote. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I used to talk to my clients about, particularly the teenagers, was something that I got from a book by an author, Stephen Pressfield. He talked about the difference between hierarchy and territory. And hierarchy is this idea, there's this ladder, you know, where, you know, I'm good at this, but so-and-so is better at me, you know, higher on the ladder, but I'm higher on the ladder that, than this other person, you know, who's who's makes more money, who's like, you know, you name your category, who sold more books, you know, it's, that's what I'm mine. But, and, and it's, and it's crazy making, you know, cause there's always somebody higher on the ladder, but territory is more horizontal and that's what do I do and how can I get better at that? How can I increase my territory, learn new things, grow? And, and that's much more sane and, and infinite. You know, we can mm. always get better at what we do. And, you know, I tell kids that, you know, sort of naturally, if you're working on your territory, you might start going up the ladder a little bit, but that's not what's important. It's, mm. you know, it's working your territory. Yeah, it's a really nice way to look at it. It's, it takes away that me other comparison and allows mm-hmm. me to be just in my own space and doing my own thing and there's a few things I think come from that that type of comparison. Like I can be, I'll be much more willing to reach out for help and ask someone. Like you know, hey, I need some help here with this. Like I'm not competing with you. You can be someone who can offer some help to me, and I can do the same, and I can reciprocate. And it just it adds that potential for the the joy and the pleasure for learning just to be so much more exponential. If my joy and pleasure is about you know on the football pitch trying to get better than the guy next to me you know then yeah that's an endless game right that's kind of some point in the future or if it does arrive then it's a very precarious one because that's going to get taken away from me pretty quick or if i if i hold on to it then that's become my stable identity and it strips out any other possibilities but you know it's just the the pure joy i for me personally of learning a new skill or or watching myself grow and 
you know, sort of wrestling with that kind of funny, awkward phase of trying to figure something out. Then it suddenly clicks into place. Like, I love that. And that's like, a, that's not a, a vertical comparison. That's just within my own self, just the kind of the, the joy and pleasure of learning and having fun. And it just speaks to the importance of holding our self-concept lightly, right? Because mm. it can get in the way of growth and learning if, if we aren't open to seeing things differently about ourselves, if we're not open to being challenged or if we don't challenge our own self-concept sometimes too. You know, sometimes you hear parents sort of talk to their children and go, you know, if the child goes, oh, I'm, you know, I don't know how to read and, oh, don't say it, don't say that, you know, you will, it's going to be fine and you've just got to keep going and sort mm -hmm. of this idea that we can't see ourselves in a negative way and actually sometimes it's quite useful. <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. it's quite motivating and, and sometimes it's true. That points to the heart of that kind of, that study, the self-doubt study with yeah. therapists because for me personally if i was being honest i don't really like it being there's a bit of me that doesn't like that sort of self-doubt place and self-doubt is means i don't have the answer like i don't know what's going on in this moment i'm not 100 percent sure what the future is going to hold and that's the thing that when i'm in that place i'm invariably much more likely to be curious interested engaged and probably a little anxious as well like i just because i can't predict the future Versus when I do know what's going to happen, I know how this is going to work and I can see exactly how things are going to pan out. I'm much less curious. I'm much less engaged. I'm just sort of going through the motions. But that kind of funny self-doubty feel, you know, that with a kind of nice dose of compassion, which I would say is when people are like, oh, there's that feeling. I know what this is. This is because of this context. It's okay. You know, I'm not weird for having it. Other people have it too. And this is part of my process of learning, being the best, whatever, therapist, football player, a guitar player, whatever the kind of task might be. It's, you know, it sort of starts to transform those functions of those uncomfortable feelings of, of the anxiety, the doubt, the fear, or that thing that shows up when we're in those sort of ambiguous situations. So it's motivating. Yeah, precisely, right? Yeah, it's motivating. Like, oh, I know that feeling. This is, this is the sign of me kind of moving forward. Something interesting is happening here. I'll keep persisting with this. This is not a sign to give up. This is a sign to keep, I keep moving with this and maybe even apply myself a little bit harder stay with this, get me more curious, figure out what's going on. I read something of yours, a very short uh, little phrase that stuck with me because it began with stuck, stuck, not broken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I feel like, you know, every person should get that tattooed somewhere on their body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, can you tell me more about that? I like it's it's so what stuck stuck is. It's, it's a transition. It's a place that I've arrived in. It sort of suggests there's an end point. There's potentially a way out of, of current situation. Broken is, is a state of permanence. There's something broken inside me. That's, there's, no, there's no repair to that. That's just as things are. And this is the kind of sort of the danger of going down that sort of self-comparison route. We start kind of putting ourselves, comparing ourselves to other people we're going to always end up in that less than place. And uh, I guess the kind of the conclusion is then you know, what is it first motivates us to make those comparisons and where does that end up? What kind of does that consolidate? What beliefs does it consolidate about ourselves? There's something less than thus. And if we're less than, there were, you know, there's something kind of not right. It's uh, not as good as broken, uh, maybe in need of being, you know, and somehow being fixed, but that not, not being possible. If I'm stuck, then, you know, I'm, I'm that different place. I can be... I'll be maybe perhaps self-doubting. I'll be unsure of myself. Uh, 
I won't be you know 100% sure what the outcome is going to be, but there's there's going to be some movement forward potentially, some different places, different options there. If I can throw another quote of yours at you. You said, rather than working to strive to be someone fundamentally different from who we are, it's working on accepting deep down who we are. So can you talk a little bit more about acceptance? Because that's a funny term. A lot of people think of it as, you know, acceptance meaning to regard something as true or valid, you know, Mm. leading to resignation. Oh, well, I guess I just have to accept the fact that I'm lazy or something Mm. like that. Mm. How are you meaning that term? It is a slippery term, isn't it? Because it has a lot of that imbued into it, that idea, and the idea of self-acceptance similarly. But it's, it's just about as far from that as possible. So this idea that, uh, you know, when I think of good self-esteem work is, is that journey towards self-acceptance. I think the reason it lands so often in a difficult place for people is, is that it's exactly that. It sounds like I just need to accept that I'm lazy and then just put up with the rest of my life. And straight away, there's a framework there that's, that's suggested that, that this is who I am. I am lazy. I am broken. I am damaged. And my lot in life is just to accept that and then kind of move on from that. The self-acceptance path is is asking for something that's not the opposite to that. It's kind of stepping completely outside of that to a place where we can really start to truly acknowledge all of us. And the kind of phrase I kind of like to use is like warts and all. So we acknowledge all of ourselves and see all of ourselves without rushing immediately to judge it. And as we sort of hold back from that rushing to judge, we can see, you know, the warts, the battle scars, the the stuff of life, the product of uh, all the experiences that we've gone through some some good, some bad, some horrendous, some you know absolutely awful and traumatic, and those all of those have, have shaped us in some way, and, and and here we are at the end of that place, and we stand rather than the judgment which takes us down that pathway that I somehow have to be, I have to change, I have to somehow fundamentally be different like fix my inherent brokenness and that way then finally i can get accepted into the human race finally there's this great sort of welcoming beam of light that shines down upon me and the gates open and then in in i enter i'm part of everyone else i'm just like everyone else and i mean if that was possible great that yeah let's do that but it turns out that's just not possible we don't we don't have the technology to do that that's that's not an option and so the thing that we do have is that ability to see these warts, these scars, what they are, just simply the, the end product of our, of, our, of our life. Typically not the things we've chosen, typically things that you know have happened to us, things that other people have done to us sometimes. And kind of with that knowledge, that sort of full appreciation and like an honest appraisal of our, of our history and the journey that we've walked, and we can stand on our feet and kind of sort of own ourselves in a way. When I say own ourselves, I mean sort of put our arms... I don't know, like in a big embrace around the good parts of us, the bad parts, the warts and all, kind of have all of that and then and then move forward from from that place. Yeah, not like an acceptance like I just kind of put up with, but a real, like a, a radically different relationship with ourselves, with all of us. And, you know, that's got some possibilities there, some exciting ones, some really new things that, that one can do when, when, they, when, when we hold ourselves in that way. It has a lot of the self-compassion in it, doesn't it, really? Mm-hmm possible I guess as um I just uh, just listening to you in that sense of just holding 
ourselves, warts and all, just sounds like such a lovely, you know, potentially a lovely place to be. Much more, yeah, there's much more space, there's room. We can move versus, you know, fighting with the way we are or especially when it comes to situations where things have happened to us or things have been done to us that we don't like and we don't want and we wish had never happened Mm. that can often lead to so much struggle. Mm. And, you know, we can, we can really fight with that, with Mm. those, those parts of us that can, you know, result in us feeling broken at times, but instead finding a way to accept that, that simply it's that radical place really of acceptance where this is what it is and and it's not all of me it doesn't make me and i guess that's the the idea with having a more sort of flexible self-esteem is that ability to hold those words lightly and that history lightly mm. and move forward with it i guess acceptance mm-hmm. can be seen as you know, a place from which we stand with all this content about ourselves with some self-compassion in the mix. This is me at this moment, you know, recognizing the context is pulling for some of this stuff, you know, that, you know, the the doubt or, you know, self-criticism or whatever it may be. But in another context, it's going to be a very different set of you know stories that we're telling ourselves. Is it so funny, isn't it? It's like I just sort of feel personally. I, can, I like a nice, good story, a nice, simple narrative, and you know, I don't like am, ambiguity and complexity and nuance. Just tell me who I am. What's what's this all about? Anything that kind of creates a little extra that complexity gets uh, it gets difficult to sit with. But absolutely, I guess we change so much across situation to situation and. You know, the whole kind of personality thing, like, you know, there's such a, we strive so much to be able to pin people in nice little boxes. This is who you are, or this is who I am. And that's incredibly appealing and feels very good. But, you know, it's obviously got its limitations if we really hold on to that too tightly. That'd be our second tattoo I'd advise people to get. Just like, hold it lightly. There's a lot of wisdom in that, Emma. So how do we, how do we actually do that? I mean, how do we, how do we cultivate, nurture this self-compassion self-acceptance in in the context of of self the self-esteem story when it shows up you know i was it was funny like listening to you talk like emma and i was like resonating just that kind of that end result of where we want to get to like holding ourselves lightly and being kind and compassionate to ourselves and recognizing this is a journey and this this doesn't change and that's a how do we get to that place because it, it certainly doesn't happen often of its own accord. There's a lot that kind of holds us back. And I think that's for, for me personally, something that's intrigued me for a long, long time, both for two reasons, both in terms of, you know, the, the clients that I work with, like, you know, when I just see people just tearing themselves apart with just the most horrendous self-criticism, I mean, as heart reaches out to them, I, I just want to hold them and just say, stop, this is, you're hurting yourself. And they just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and telling them to stop showing how much it's hurting them makes absolutely no difference at all. Uh, and the second thing that also caught me is that I, I, I found myself doing exactly the same thing. And in terms of, you know, pulling myself down and self-criticism and the, the extra bit that I had uh, eyes on that I, I didn't have in therapy, this is kind of funny, but just how much it, it felt good to do it. And I just could not get my head around it. I could hear the words and think, what's wrong with me? 
how could I possibly say these things? If anyone heard what I was saying, I'd be like shocked and horrid and horror. And, and yet there's a bit inside it kind of felt good to do that. And I just, you know, I, and I, I you know, read self-help books and talked to colleagues. I knew it was wrong. Like, don't be so self-critical and all the kind of things that go into the bin of criticism, you know, pulling yourself down, doing low self-esteem type of actions. So it was so confusing to me. How could something so hor hor horrible feel so good? And I think that's a, a really, really interesting point of, of how do we get someone to that end place we're talking about? Because there's a massive gulf in there. Because you can show people that gulf and they go, yeah, that's where I want to get to. Absolutely. And you'll start pulling them along that journey and saying, yeah, let's get to here. And they will just pull back, pull back and fight consistently against kind of getting to that end point. Because it's like it just it eats at them. It's like it's, it's, it's pulling at something fundamental to them. Uh, and asking them to get to that end point of kindness, compassion, just is that they will fight tooth and nail. They will fight just about to their life as it end. Uh, so understanding that becomes a really crucial part of that. So the quick question, why do, we, why do people, why do we, why, do, why did I do this? Because it felt good, because it felt right, because it was the right thing to do. It was who I was. It was part of my identity. It told me important things about myself. And probably above all else, it kept me safe. And when I was too busy criticizing myself, then I wouldn't do new things. I would, I would hold back. I would play it safe. I wouldn't go and play football with the dads. I would, wouldn't go out and meet new people. I would, you know, keep in my nice little safe comfort zone because that was the place that I wasn't going to get hurt. I wasn't going to have the things deep down I knew about myself confirmed from other people, which really hurt even more. So I tell myself these things and I keep myself safe. And my clients, I would see doing that end and end and end of end, end doing exactly that same thing. The things that we explored myself and my friend and colleague Rich Bennett in our, our self-esteem book is trying to get across to people, why, why do you do this? And both sort of giving a kind of nice rationale and a reason and helping people to understand and sort of say, it's okay, it's okay to do that. That's understandable. And that's part of the process of unhooking this. Well, we called it a self-esteem monster. It was the metaphor we used. But we were kind of careful about using this metaphor of a monster because we did not want it to convey it as just this big ogre-like creature with te teeth and fangs and was hurtful. But it was a little bit like the sort of more appropriate. I don't know you guys would have seen what's the Monsters Inc. Right? You know the mm. you seen Monsters Inc. The Pixar film with the big monsters, and there's one in there, Sully James P. Sullivan, who's the big purple monster who's exceptionally good at scaring kids. But he just happens to by you know if you look at him, he's a cute and cuddly kind of big cat-like figure, right? You know he's got a lot of really soft fur, and he just embodied these kind of characteristics. I think of a good self-esteem monster, big. Looms over large, tells you straight away who you are, but is kind of cute and cuddly. You want to be embraced and picked up and looked after. And he feels good because he keeps you safe and says, don't go there because that's their danger lurks. Stay with me. And right in amongst that is, you know, a, a key part of the, the journey towards self-acceptance. It's a hard, it's a tough one. And it means letting go of that warm embrace of Sully who keeps one safe. He tells you who you are and, and, and you know, tells you what, what life is really all about. So it's, you know, it's in, a, in a lot of respects, it's kind of moving out of the, into the coldness. It's kind of like a standing up. It's a sort of a cold journey in a way. It's, it's arduous. So, but, you know, the, the, the couple of things have got to come from that. One, you've got to sort of got to get eyes on this monster. See it there for, for what it is. You know, where did it come from? What's its history? What's, what, what do you call this thing? And then realize just how good it feels to be embraced with that thing. And if you get eyes on those two things, you've got a fighting chance to be able to, you know, begin to choose if one wants to, not everyone does, they'd be able to choose the kind of journey forward. You know, a lot of people would say, nope, not for me. I'm going to stay in my nice, safe, cozy comfort zone. And that's, you know, it's a valid decision to make, right? One can do that. I, I remember he hearing somebody say, your comfort zone will be there when you get back. 
it's always going to be there, right? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is interesting, isn't it? How um, I was just thinking about that self-esteem monster. And, and it is true that that self-critical voice is so reassuring, you know, paradoxically, right? It, it's actually can be really quite harsh and hard, but it's got a, a familiar tone. Mm. We all know it. We all know that self-critical voice. We all have it where it's a bit more punitive or, or not. We all have one. And it is familiar and it can be very comforting because it isn't, um, you know, about taking risks. On the contrary, it's staying safe. But obviously, it also means it restricts you tremendously as well. Mm. If we stay in what embrace. Well, it's, it's like a, uh, a back backseat driver, you know, or, you know, sometimes we talk about, you know, driving a bus, you know, the metaphor that we all use and the passengers on the bus are telling us how to drive and, you know, we're Mm. going too fast, we're going too slow, whatever it may be. And we have to be able to uh, accept the the passengers without letting them influence how we drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather than fighting or struggling with them or trying to throw them off the bus. Yeah. Yes. And they have a a knack of telling us exactly what is going to stop us from driving our bus. So I think this is a, maybe a good moment to sort of wrap up this wonderful conversation with you, Joe. It's been really good to think about self-esteem and the journey towards self-acceptance versus sort of holding on too tightly to this our ideas about ourselves. And it's been a great conversation thinking about all the different contexts in which, you know, perhaps we might feel more vulnerable or our self-esteem might feel more at risk. And yet, you know, being able to step outside into the unknown can give us, you know, fabulous new experiences. It can lead to growth and new opportunities. So, yes, thank you very much for this wonderful conversation tonight. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure talking with you both. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See See you you then. then.